Well, welcome again uh, to Grace Bible Church. If I don't know you, my name is Daniel Ernest. I'm the executive pastor here, and it's a, a pleasure to get to preach to you from, from God's Word today. Uh, we're going to be continuing on in the book of Joshua this morning, so if you would please uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to Joshua chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter today, and uh, it, it's a lot of grounds to cover, uh, and so I, I want to kind of get right to it. Uh, before I read, real quickly, remember, in Joshua 1, God commissioned Joshua, who's the leader of Israel, this is Moses' replacement, to enter the promised land. Okay? God commissioned Joshua to take the land back from God's enemies, and God also promised that he would be with Joshua and that he would be with Israel. And even more, he promised, really he guaranteed Joshua and Israel success in their campaign. As we get into chapter 2, the Israelites are on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, the eastern border of Israel. They're, they're waiting to cross the river. They're ready to begin their military conquest. So, what happens next? Look at Joshua 2. I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 7. Joshua 2 verse 1 says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Okay, I want to start by focusing on verse 1. Okay, like I said before I started reading, Israel's army was ready to go. Okay, they're, they're ready to fight. But instead of crossing the Jordan right away, instead of beginning the fight immediately, there's a, a delay. Joshua sends two spies from the camp, and he does that specifically, the text tells us, to gather intelligence on the city of Jericho. Now, what you need to know about Jericho is Jericho is like this, this major obstacle for Israel as they begin their conquest. It was a, a walled city in an open valley, so it was well protected, it was well situated, and also Jericho was a it was strategically a very important city. And that's because if Israel could sack, if it could take a walled city, well then 
there'd be no place of refuge for their enemies to retreat to as their campaign continued into the land. And so, wanting to do it right, Joshua sends two spies to Jericho. And at this point, it's worthwhile to consider is Joshua sending spies, is his sort of seeming delay here, is this hesitancy on Joshua's part? Is he he overtaken by maybe a a twinge of doubt? Or or is he hedging his bets? Uh, Remember, they've come to the brink of the Jordan. They're about to enter into the land. God has promised to be with them. He literally said to him in chapter 1, no man will be able to stand before you. And yet we see here in chapter 2, Joshua sends spies to check out the enemy. Is this an indication of a a lack of faith? Is Joshua wondering if God can actually deliver? I want to be clear. This is not unbelief. This is not doubt. In, In fact, I would say it's far from it. This is what faith in the promises of God looks like. You see, while God had certainly told Joshua that he would take the land, that he would give the land to Israel, he didn't tell Joshua to abandon reason and wisdom while he did it. And this teaches us something about faith, and that is faith is not presumption. Okay, faith is not presumption, meaning faith certainly trusts that God will do what he says he'll do, but it never abandons the ordinary in the hopes that God maybe might do the extraordinary. Okay, like, it's not holy to sit on your hands and wait for God to move. That's not trust. That's passivity. Hey, think about it. Just as an example here, okay, God has promised us, he's promised Christians throughout the New Testament, he's promised that he will sanctify us, that he will make us more like Jesus. But that rarely, really, it never happens overnight. Like God didn't send a lightning bolt from heaven that makes you godly in an instant. Instead, God uses ordinary means in your life to deliver on this extraordinary promise that he'll sanctify us. He he uses your time reading the Bible every single day. He uses your time praying. He uses times like this, weekly worship, or or time spent with communities, time spent in your small group. He uses slow, steady faithfulness, little choices, little steps of growth here and there. That's how God sanctifies us. That's how God delivers on his promise. He uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. Now, of course, God is free to do whatever he wants, however he wants. If God wants to topple the walls of Jericho miraculously by a a trumpet blast and a shout, he can do it. And, And spoiler alert, he does. But that doesn't mean Joshua shouldn't gather intelligence. Wars are won by spies and soldiers and tactics. And so Joshua, believing 100% in what God has said he would do, he sends spies. And these spies, these two guys, we read, they make it to Jericho and they encounter a woman named Rahab. And and Rahab, we're told, is a a prostitute. 
And there's no getting around what she is. She's a prostitute here. She's referred to that. She's referred to that twice in the New Testament. She sells her body for money. And we're told that her house, that they're at her house, it's likely some sort of inn or, or, or tavern. It would have been a, a popular gathering place, a place where there would have been a lot of out-of-towners, a lot of travelers. And for the spies, it was a, a great place to get lost in a crowd to disappear. But the funny thing is, you sort of get the impression in verse 2 that these guys are not very good spies, right? Like, they're immediately found out, essentially, as soon as they enter into Jericho. Everyone knows who they are, where they're from, and what they came to do. And, and word makes it all the way to the top. The king of Jericho, who, who's really more like, like the mayor of the city, when he finds out, he sends a, a couple of his officers to pick them up. So, so, so through verse 3, it's not looking good for the spies. But then something surprising happens. Okay, Rahab, the, the, the prostitute, when she's approached by the king's officers, she doesn't turn the spies in. Instead, we're told in verse 6 that she hid them on the roof. And in verses 4 and 5, we're told that she straight up lies to the men who were looking for them. She intentionally deceives them. And these Jericho police they actually buy the lie. Like, this is amazing incompetence on display. Like, they knew the spies were there, and yet they don't search the place. Like, they, they take the prostitute's word, which is probably just not good practice for law enforcement. <laughs> like, this is like Rahab uses like a Jedi mind trick, and everything just sort of goes and moves along. There's no pushback, no interrogation. And verse 7 told us they go charging off. You can kind of hear the sirens fading in the distance outside the city. And, and you can bet, like, neither Rahab or the spies can believe they get away with it. Okay, they can't believe this worked. But of course, that's the whole point, right? It shouldn't have worked. But this is God. He hides the spies. He blinds the eyes of the police. He uses a lying prostitute. All of it to accomplish his purpose. And this shows us something incredibly important. This shows us something so important. It shows us that nothing, absolutely nothing, can get in the way of God's plans. When God says he's going to do something, he will do it guaranteed. Okay, and at an individual level, that should bring you and me peace in a world of anxiety. That should bring us comfort in a world of confusion, security in the face of uncertainty. Because we can know no matter what circumstances we face, it could be good or it could be bad, we can know Nothing can stop God from accomplishing the good he has for us in every situation. Nothing can stop him. How different would your life be if you believed that at every turn? And at a corporate level, as, as Christians, this fact, it should provide us with confidence. I want you to hear this. No matter what state the world is in, 
Uh, No matter which direction the culture seems to be going, the mission of God to declare the work of Jesus to the ends of the earth, that mission, our mission as a church, it cannot, it will not be stopped. Collectively, that should fire you up. That should give you conviction as you make disciples. So anything God sovereignly intends to do, we can be sure he'll do it. That's what we're seeing here in this story. We can take it to the bank. But that said, in in verse 7, it sort of ends on an ominous note. It says the the gates of the city were shut. And and what you need to know is in, in the ancient days, when the gates were shut, there was no more coming and going. Okay, so, so, so the spies were safe for now, but, but like there's going to be more people looking for them by the morning. And surely more people will be circling back to Rahab, asking her questions, doing a more thorough search. So we sort of are left in verse 7 with wondering, how are they going to get out of this one? What, what are they going to do? Look at verse 8. I'm going to read all the way through verse 14. Joshua 2, 8 starts like this. Before the men lay down, she, Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Okay, so... Before we get to the spies' actual escape, I want to focus on what I think is the most incredible part of this story, the most unbelievable part of this story, and it comes in the form of Rahab's confession of faith. You see, instead of expressing anxiety or, or despair in light of the danger that she's put herself in, beginning in verse 9, astonishingly, she seizes the opportunity to express her faith in the God of Israel. Okay, to start, she she names him. Did you notice the the, the word Lord was in all caps in verse 9? Look at it. Do you see it? That indicates that Rahab, a, a Canaanite, a foreigner, was using the covenant name of God, Yahweh, that the name by which he was known only by his people. And she says, I know Yahweh has given you the land. And implicitly, she's acknowledging God is not just like a a tribal, local deity. 
He's not one of many Canaanite gods. In fact, at the end of verse 11, she says, the Lord your God, he's what? He's the God of heavens and earth. And she says, he's the only God. He's the only God. But not only does she acknowledge who God is, she also recognizes what God has done. Did you notice that? Look at verse 10. She says, we know what happened when you came out of Egypt. She says, we know how God saved you, how he delivered you from bondage, how he parted the Red Sea. And then she goes on at the end of verse 10. She says, we know how Sihon and Og were devoted to destruction. And you might think that that's just kind of a a fun way to say that the Israelites won the battle. But it's actually a technical phrase that we're going to see over and over and over in Joshua. This phrase, to devote to destruction, this refers to the execution of divine judgment. Okay, so, so, so not only does Rahab know that God saves his people, but she also understands that God is coming to judge his enemies in the land. And then she goes one step further. She, she casts herself before God and she begs for mercy. Look at verse 12. She invokes the covenant name of God again and she calls the spies. She says, please, deal kindly with me. Deal kindly. This phrase that's rendered deal kindly, it's, it's a Hebrew word and, and what you need to know about it is, is it expresses God's covenant love. It's used throughout the Old Testament, and it's used to describe the way that God interacts with his people, how God shows grace and mercy to his people. And Rahab is telling these spies, she's saying, I've risked everything to side with the one true God, with, with the God of covenant love. Now, please, return the favor. She's, playing, she's saying, please, save me. Show me mercy. And I want to be clear, she's she's not bargaining with the spies here, as if one good turn deserves another. That's not what's going on. No, she saves the spies. She helps them because she recognizes, she understands that more is at stake than just her life. She knows that behind the armies of Israel stands the God of heaven and earth, the judge of the living and the dead. And so she resolves to not run from him, but instead to run to him. She determines to seek God's mercy, his covenant love. And this is what makes her different than every other Canaanite in Jericho, right? She tells us here, they all know the facts. They all know what's coming. They all know who is coming. But what sets Rahab apart was her resolve to entrust herself to God, to to throw herself before God's mercy, to to run toward his covenant love. And I want you to consider, it might be that you know all the facts too. It might be that you've heard the outline of the gospel time and time and time again. You've grown up in the church I want you to see here in this story, knowing all of that, it's it's not enough. It doesn't make a a difference unless you do what Rahab did. You, You must actually come to God personally. You must seek 
his mercy. You have to resolve to depend on, to rely on his covenant love. And so I want you to think, right now, which direction are you running? Are you like Rahab? Are you running to God, to his love and mercy, to his grace and compassion? Or are you like every other Canaanite in Jericho? the ones that are going to be devoted to destruction? Are you running away from God? Are you running away from God and, and to other gods, to your work, to your relationships, your status, your wealth, whatever it is? Which direction are you running? It's the most important question you'll ever answer. Literally, eternity for you hangs in the balance. And some of you, you might be sitting there thinking, you don't know my past. You, you don't know the things I've done. You, you might be sitting there thinking that you're somehow beyond the reach of God's kindness, that, that, it's, that it's too late for mercy, that you're too lost for grace. If that's you, or if, if it's someone you know, someone who you, you desperately want to believe in the gospel, but you think there's no chance, there's no chance they'll ever believe, I want you to remember who we've been talking about this whole time. Rahab has got to be the most unlikely convert in the Bible. She's an outsider, a Gentile by birth. She's a, a foreigner to God's covenant. She's a, a woman living in a man's world. She's vulnerable. She has no rights. She's unmarried and childless. She was a prostitute. She's so desperate for income that she's sold her own body. She was a pagan. She worshiped countless gods, just like everyone else in Jericho. Rahab is, in many respects, the epitome. She's the exact reason why God is coming to judge the Canaanites. And yet, and yet, God saves her. The New Testament, in two places, James and Hebrews lists her among the heroes of the faith. And that's the essence, the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? All of us, regardless of, of how comparatively good or bad we are, all of us are equally worthy of the judgment of God to be devoted to destruction. But by his grace, God saves some of us. God gives some of us true faith, and he spares us from the wrath we deserve. So regardless of what your life has looked like until this very moment, regardless of the person that's in your mind, regardless of what their life looks like right now, regardless of how far you've strayed or how deep they're immersed in immorality or rebellion or self-indulgence, the one true God is standing here offering salvation. And all you need to do, all they need to do, like Rahab, is put their faith, is put your faith in him. And for those of us that are Christians here, God's salvation of us, it's, it's no more or less a miracle than what happens with Rahab here. Every testimony, every life story here is a miracle. And we should live our lives in awe of the fact that, that God stooped and he plucked us from our sin, from our idolatry. And he did it not because we're smarter or better than other people. He did it simply because he loved us. He did it to glorify himself, to show that he could make his enemies his friends. 
the message that we find here is that, yes, God judges sinners, but also, thankfully, he spares those who believe in him. Rahab understood, and she chose to unite herself with the Israelites. And the spies, we saw this in verse 14, they agree to Rahab's proposal. But remember, the gate, it's shut. Okay, they're still stuck there. The police are still looking. How do they get out of it? We're gonna find out now. Verse 15, I'm gonna read through verses 21. Okay, then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into, the, your, into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Okay, so the spies sneak out of Rahab's window. They, they get outside of the walls, and they get lowered down, and then they get one last assist from her as they go. Okay, she says, wait out the pursuers in the hills for three days. Wait three days before you go on your way. And, and then, as they're leaving, the spies affirm the promise that they had just made to Rahab. They guarantee her safety and the safety of her whole family, and they give her the means of deliverance. She had asked for a, a sign that she would be saved, and, and they give her this sign of protection. Did you see it? In verse 18, it's, it's this scarlet cord, and they told her to tie it to the window as a sign. Now, the scarlet cord, it clearly looks forward to something. We'll get there in a second. But also, it looks back on the Passover, on the Passover. The scarlet cord reminds us of the blood that was painted on the doorframe, and both here and there, salvation would come for God's people in the midst of judgment. Rahab and her family, her whole house, would find salvation as God's judgment passed over their household. Of course, the blood on the doorframe, the scarlet cord, these things foreshadow, they serve as a symbol of the coming Savior of Jesus whose shed blood on the cross saves anyone who believes. You see, just like Rahab, just like the Israelites in, e in Egypt, if you believe in Jesus, you're marked by his blood. It serves as a symbol that your debt has been paid. And so on, on judgment day, 
Well, when God is separating sheep from goats, sinners from saints, the only thing that will matter, the only thing that will save you, it won't be because you've done more good than bad. It won't be because you've worked your hardest to be a nice person or a moral person. Now, it'll be because you put your faith in Jesus. It'll be because you're marked by his blood. It'll be because you have the scarlet cord hanging out your window. So Rahab, she sends the spies away. We're told she displays the cord. She, she hunkers down. She waits for Joshua to lead his army across the river. And we'll come back to her story a couple of weeks from now in chapter 6. But before then, the spies finally make it back to Joshua. And I want you to notice their conclusion. Look with me at verses 22 through 24. Joshua 2.22 says, They, the spies, departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Okay, verse 24, that last verse I just read, this tells us the whole point of chapter 2. Okay, this, this whole story, all of it, the hidden spies, the conversion of Rahab, all of it reassures Joshua, God's leader, that God's promises are trustworthy. And sure, God had already said that he was going to give the land to Israel, but here the Lord reinforces his word. He shows Joshua that the spy's deliverance, through the spy's deliverance, that his promises are true. And God does this simply because he's kind. Because he's gracious. You see, the, the problem is not that God's promises are, are not certain. They are. But the problem, typically for you and me, the problem is that our faith is too weak. And, and so God, like he does here with Joshua, he graciously provides us with signs and evidences that make us experience or feel his trustworthiness. Okay, this is like buying flowers for your wife. Hopefully she doesn't need them to know that you love her, but it's an extra effort to make sure she feels it, that she experiences it. That's what God is doing here with Joshua in chapter 2. Hey, he's already told him in chapter 1, I'm giving you the land, but chapter 2, in all this drama and suspense, it's essentially an aside. A lot of commentators even say, like, it doesn't really even move the story along. It's, it's almost unnecessary but it's here to remind Joshua that God is with him. It's here to remind him right before he enters into the land, right as he starts his conquest, that God has gone before him, that God is worthy of his trust. And if you're thinking, man, that sure would be nice. Like if every now and then God worked in some miraculous way to, to remind you that he loved you, to confirm that he's trustworthy. Like, it'd come in handy, wouldn't it? Of course, but, but I want you to remember that the greatest confirmation of God's word, the, the, the greatest token of his love, the best reminder we could ever get, it's Jesus, right? If you're sitting here today and you're struggling to feel God's love, if, if you're sitting there and you, you feel 
unworthy or overlooked, if you're, you're doubting or insecure, if you, if you feel distant from the Lord like He's forgotten you, I want you to look no further than the cross. God loves you so much that He sent His only Son to die for you, to, to take your place, and Jesus, He willingly endured the pain and the shame. He, he suffered an ignoble death to glorify the Father, yes, but motivated, driven there by love for you, for me. And by the way, I think this is so cool. I'm going to close with this. Jesus only comes because God saved Rahab. That's how all of this connects. And you say, what do you mean? Rahab's salvation, her deliverance here, it enabled her to survive. It enabled her to become one of Jesus' ancestors. She's a part of his genealogy. She's the great-great-grandmother of King David. In other words, without this story, without chapter 2, without Rahab, there would be no Jesus. So, so, so what was God really doing in directing the spies to Rahab's house? What was God really doing in bringing this apparently random Canaanite prostitute to saving faith? In the immediate, like I said, for sure, he's, he's providing Joshua with assurance, with, with confidence in his word. But big picture, he was preserving Jesus' line. He was making it possible for the Messiah to come so that not only Rahab, but also so that you and me might come to him and find refuge. And we could find salvation in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The, the, the beauty of this almost unnecessary story is that it points us to a better story. It points us to Jesus, to the one who can save the least and the worst, the ones that are the furthest out. It points us to the one who gives us access to the only God, his Father, the Lord of heaven and earth. And all we need to do, like Rahab, is put our faith in him, not just once, but every single day. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for this story, Lord. I'm thankful for the reminder, Lord, of uh, how far away each one of us is from you, Lord, that, that we are sinners, uh, Lord, that deserve to be devoted to destruction, Lord, deserving of your judgment. But, Lord, I'm even more thankful and uh, in awe of the fact that you would choose, Lord, to save us, Lord, that you would send your son, Jesus, to, to live a perfect life, to die a death that we deserved in our place, Lord, but also to resurrect from the grave. Lord, I, I'm thankful that you have chosen to interact with us in that way and that you've given us salvation through your son, Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that that would really settle home for each one of us in this room. Lord, I, I pray that we would live uh, not just in awe, but in gratitude. And Lord, I also pray that it would enable us uh, Lord, as we try to do the ordinary things to, to accomplish extraordinary purposes, Lord, I, I, pr I pray that it would give us the motivation, the conviction to do that. We love you, Lord. We need your spirit for all those things, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.